Tonight's scripture reading is from Mark 6, verses 45 through 42. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Thank you, Scott. Well, I hope you guys have had a uh, more fun week than I have. This last week, some of you know that I'm in seminary, and uh, I had this class that I signed up for six months ago, a class on Genesis, and I thought, well, that'll be a good thing to do over the summer, and you have six months to complete these online courses. So naturally, I signed up, you know, six months ago and didn't really work on it much until the summer, started it when the rest of my classes were, were finished. And uh, there was this one large paper that I had to write for it. And so I had I'd done all the reading and I'd listened to all the lectures. But the paper, you know, that I got put off as, as things like that are, are often put off. And so this week I was studying for the exam and doing this paper on Genesis. I was doing it on the covenant that God makes with Noah in Genesis 9. So I did not leave the house, like, at all. I just sat in my room and was surrounded by books and everything like that. So I didn't socialize. I didn't like watch TV. It was, uh, it was uh, a long week. Um, it's not to say it wasn't edifying, but you know, after a while, just being with books and writing stuff, I get, I get tired. <laughs> so it's good to be here tonight. Um, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm happy to be out of, the, out of the house, out of my room. So tonight we're looking at one of Jesus' miracles, and I've got to say, this miracle has got to be the most random one in Jesus' repertoire. Um, The turning into the water into wine one, you know, that one seemed a little little frivolous, but his mom asked him to do it. And uh, when you think about it, there's definitely some significant symbolism there. Jesus uses wine as a symbol of the new covenant and his blood at the Last Supper. So it seems like what he's doing in some way then is, is foreshadowing that. So that miracle's not that out there. And then, of course, most of the miracles we hear about Jesus involves some sort of act of healing. And those make perfect, perfect sense to us because, uh, you know, Jesus gives thing, does things like gives a blind man sight, heals a leper, makes a lame man Uh, walk, those strike us as good uses of supernatural ability, using divine power to alleviate suffering. You know, we like that. That makes sense. Um, And then right before this specific incident of walking on water, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and that miracle probably seems pretty reasonable to us too. People have to eat, providing for physical needs, that's a good thing. 
And clearly Jesus is, you know, trying to communicate something about how he wants to feed us spiritually as well. So that miracle makes a lot of sense. And then there's a time just a few chapters before this uh, walking on water incident where the disciples are on a boat and there's a nasty storm and Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves and they become completely calm. And that miracle, that miracle makes sense to us too, right? Uh, because the boat was in danger of sinking and Jesus did what needed to be done to stop that. So good use of supernatural power makes sense. And really, what we see time and time again is that when Jesus uses supernatural power, it's never frivolous. It's never just because he can. He's never like, ha-ha, look guys, I just gave Peter a donkey tail because he's, you know, been a you-know-what lately. (laughs) Um, He doesn't, like, apparate from place to place like in Harry Potter. At least not on a regular basis. There is one incident where it looks like that might have happened in the Gospels, one that I know of. Um, But in general, that's not how he operates. Jesus is very purposeful in the miracles that he does. Nothing is just because he can. But this walking on water thing, at least on the surface, seems kind of just because he can-ish. Like Jesus was on the shore and he thought, you know what would be nice? If I took a walk on the water. (laughs) And if that is what happened, I can't really blame him. I know. I've been on boats before, and I've looked out to the horizon, just extending forever, and I thought, how much fun would it be to just run out there on the water? Except I wouldn't want it to be totally solid. I would want it to be kind of bouncy, like an enormous trampoline. (laughs) But anyway, uh, even though on the surface this miracle might seem frivolous, I want us to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt that he is being very purposeful in what he's doing here. That seems to be his way of operating, so we shouldn't assume that this time is any different. So we have to ask, what is the point of this? What does Jesus want us to learn? What has motivated him to take this walk on the water? Well, the first thing I think we need to recognize is that there was a human need here. It's not as obvious as in most of the other miracles, but it's there. Verse 47, um, and Jamie, you you can bring it up if you'd like. If, you, if it's easy to do that. Thanks. Uh, verse 47 says, When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake. So Jesus told his disciples, You guys go on ahead of me. Go to Bethsaida. I'm going to pray for a while. I'm going to stay here. Take the boat. Get out of here. So they leave, and they're halfway across the lake by the time evening arrives. Then it says in verse 48, Jesus saw the disciples straining at the oars, because the wind was against them. So when evening came, the wind became a problem. Then it says, about the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them. So when is the fourth watch of the night? Well, the Romans used to divide the night into four watches, these four units of time. And the first watch, 6 to 9 p.m. The second watch, 9 to midnight. The third watch, midnight until 3 a.m. The last watch, 3 a.m. until 6 a.m. So what's easy to miss is that there's this huge gap of time between the first half of verse 48 and the second half. So the first half talks about when evening came, right? When evening came, the disciples were in the middle of the lake. Then the wind picked up when evening came, and they were straining at the oars. So what time is evening? Well, 
I'm not positive, but I would guess it's a little before night, right? But the first watch of the night starts at 6 p.m. So the disciples start straining at the oars early. So let's just say, conservative estimate, the disciples are in the middle of the lake, straining at the oars at 6 p.m. Jesus doesn't come out to them until at least 3 a.m. So between the first part of verse 48 and the second part, we've got nine hours that elapse. Nine hours. The disciples fight the wind for a long time. Because we're told in verse 51 that the wind doesn't die down until Jesus climbs into the boat with them. And not only did they fight the wind for the long time, but it must have been a really strong wind, because remember, when evening fell, the disciples were already in the middle of the lake. So they were halfway to the other side by the time evening fell, but in nine hours, they hadn't managed to get to the other side. In nine hours. And it definitely didn't take them anywhere near nine hours to get to the middle of the lake in the first place, because it seems pretty clear that Jesus dismissed them in the late afternoon, and they managed to get to the middle of the lake by six. So this was a really strong, fierce, scary wind. So there was a need, and Jesus came and he met that need. So that was clearly part of the purpose of the miracle. But the answer can't be that simple, because just a few chapters before this incident, when Jesus walks on water, there was another time when the disciples were on a boat in a storm. And Jesus didn't need to walk on water to take care of that. All he needed to do was speak to the wind and waves and say, quiet, be still. And they obeyed. So if Jesus needs to do, if all Jesus needs to do to calm the storm is just speak, and it happens, I'm sure he could have done that from the shore, right? He knew the storm was happening. He could see it happening. He could see the disciples straining at the oars. So why does he bother to go out walking on the water? Does nature have some kind of agreement with God that he's only, nature is only going to obey him if he says these things from a boat? I doubt it. So Jesus doesn't just walk on the water to meet the disciples' needs. He walks on the water because he wants to meet the disciples' need in a way that will communicate something important to them. But what is that? What does walking on water communicate that calming the storm from the shore doesn't. Well, for one thing, it makes it really obvious that Jesus is the one calming the storm. It would be hard for the disciples to know for sure that Jesus was the one who came to the rescue if he had stopped the storm from the shore. That's pretty obvious. But the disciples already knew that Jesus could calm storms. They'd seen him do it. So if Jesus walked on the water just to make sure he could get credit for calming the storm, it seems like a lot of trouble for something the disciples wouldn't need to be convinced of. They already knew this. I'm sure Jesus could have been like the next day, hey, when that storm stopped last night, that was me. And the disciples would have been like, oh yeah, I guess that's not too surprising. You did that before. We, we thought it might have been you. Would have been nice if you did a little earlier, though. But thanks for that. So the question is still there, right? What was Jesus trying to communicate? Why walking on the water? Well, I think if we read a little further, there's a clue. Verse 51. I could bring it up. Verse 51 says, Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. They were completely amazed, 
for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Now that reference to the loaves is talking about the miracle Jesus did right before this miracle, which was the feeding of the 5,000. You guys probably know that story. Jesus took a couple of loaves of bread and somehow multiplied them so that they fed thousands of people. And there was even a dozen baskets left over at the end. And what this verse tells us is that if the disciples had realized what Jesus was trying to tell them through that last miracle, if they had understood about the loaves, then they would not be amazed by what, it, about what had just happened. If they had understood what Jesus was trying to say through the feeding of the 5,000, they would not have been amazed by Jesus walking on water. So there's something about Jesus walking on water that amazes the disciples in a way that feeding the 5,000 didn't. Something clicks for them when they see Jesus walking on the water. It should have clicked for them when Jesus fed the 5,000, but it didn't. They didn't understand about the loaves. But something's clicking for them now. And whatever that is, it makes them completely amazed. Now, some people would say, and I don't like this, some people would say that what the disciples are finally starting to realize is that, hey, this guy Jesus is powerful. He can do miracles. But that can't be right. You know, they just saw Jesus multiply five loaves of bread to feed thousands of people. They knew that didn't just happen naturally. They'd already seen Jesus raise a dead girl to life. They'd already seen him heal a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. They'd already seen him calm a storm with his word. So this walking on water, it's not a revelation that Jesus can do miraculous things. What they hadn't understood about the loaves wasn't that Jesus couldn't do miracles. What they hadn't understood about the loaves was that Jesus was revealing his divinity. He wasn't just revealing what he could do. He was revealing who he was. And they'd missed that. Throughout Jewish history, there had been other prophets. There had been other miracle workers. Elijah, Elisha, they did some amazing, amazing things. But there had never been another son of God. And there was something about these miracles, this feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water, that was deliberately trying to communicate that. And when Jesus walks on water, something starts to click for the disciples. They're completely amazed, not because now they know that Jesus can do miracles, but because they know that Jesus is identifying himself with the source of all miracles. So why would walking on water communicate that? We still have this question that's kind of pesky. Well, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure. I don't know for sure. Um, there's a moment in that Noah movie that came out last spring where the Methuselah character says to Noah, Noah, you must trust that God speaks to you in a way you can understand. And I think there's wisdom in that because I think with something like this, we need to trust that when Jesus fed the 5,000 and when he walked on water, he was speaking in a way that the people then could understand. Because in Matthew's account of this same walking on the water miracle, it, it's very clear that there was something about this moment that spoke to the disciples in a way that they could understand. Because immediately after they see Jesus walk on water, the disciples worship him for the first time. And they say to him, truly you are the Son of God. First time they call him the Son of God, first time they worship. And any good Jew know, knew you don't worship anybody but God alone. 
So this, this was a powerful event for them. It was transformative. One theory about why Jesus walking on water would communicate this idea of divinity is that both it and the feeding of the 5,000 were meant to remind the disciples of other miraculous things that God had done in the past. Back in the book of Exodus, when the Israelites are freed from slavery in Egypt, they wander in the desert for 40 years, and during that time, God miraculously sustains them by providing bread from heaven. So when Jesus miraculously provides the bread, he's identifying himself as the same one who provided bread for the Israelites long ago. And then when he walks on water, that would have reminded the disciples of the parting of the Red Sea when God first brought them up out of Egypt. And so in walking on water, Jesus identifies himself with the God who split the Red Sea and made the depths of the sea solid so that the Israelites could walk across. And the combination of these two miracles happening so close together would have helped them to recognize the similarities between Jesus and the God who led the Israelites during the Exodus. So that's a theory, and I can't prove it. I realize it might seem like a little bit of a stretch, but it's something to consider. Another theory is that Jesus was appealing to Job 9.8, which says of God, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. So that's another possibility. But again, hard to prove. The text isn't clear. But what the text does show us is that by walking on water, Jesus was doing something that spoke to the disciples about who he really was. It wasn't just frivolous. It was what they needed to see in order to realize that Jesus wasn't just another prophet or miracle worker. It was what they needed to see to realize that Jesus was worthy of worship. It was what they needed to see to say, truly this man is the Son of God. So that's the number one thing I think we need to realize about Jesus walking on water. Now, Jesus is very clever. So there's usually multiple truths being revealed by the way he acts in these kinds of events. So there are other things we can learn here, too. And I'm going to get a little allegorical here with the next couple points, but I think it's appropriate. So here are three things, quickly, that I think we can learn from this. The first thing is this. When we're facing a storm in life, Jesus doesn't always show up when we want him to. When we're facing a storm in life, Jesus doesn't always show up when we want him to. Remember, the disciples were straining at the oars probably for about nine hours. First watch of the, of the night, no sign of Jesus. Second watch, no sign of Jesus. Third watch, no sign of Jesus. Now, I don't think we need to turn the story into some kind of principle. We shouldn't say, oh, Jesus only shows up to help us when we're completely exhausted. But sometimes, sometimes that's what happens. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus isn't always with us. He is. But that special intervention that we often find ourselves waiting for, that intervention doesn't always happen when we want it to. Sometimes it happens a lot later than we would like. But our job is not to judge when Jesus should or shouldn't intervene in that special way. Our job is to trust that when the time is right for that special intervention, that's when Jesus will show up. Not a moment too soon, not a moment too late. When it's time for us to strain at the oars, we need to strain at the oars, even if we're up till 3 a.m. And when it's time for Jesus to walk on the water and relieve us, 
that's when he'll walk on the water and relieve us. We need to trust his timing. Number two, second thing we learn from this miracle is that when Jesus does show up, it's not always the way we expected. When Jesus shows up, it's not always the way we expected. Remember, the disciples had already seen Jesus calm a storm, and when he took care of that storm, he just spoke, and it stopped. This time, the text doesn't say anything about Jesus speaking to the storm. It just says that he shows up by walking on the water, gets in the boat, and the storm stops. Jesus doesn't take care of the storm in Mark 6 exactly the same way, in exactly the same way as he does in Mark 4. And when he shows up, the way he does is so unexpected that the disciples don't even recognize him. They thought he was a ghost or some kind of unclean spirit hovering over the water. They so didn't expect him to intervene in the way that he did that it terrified them. Verse 50 says they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. It's kind of ironic, but they seem more frightened by Jesus than by the storm. The text doesn't say anything about the disciples being terrified by the storm, only that they were terrified by Jesus. Jesus showed up in a way they didn't expect, and that was scary. And sometimes when Jesus intervenes in our storms, he does so in ways that we don't expect. And sometimes it's scary. But he does it that way because in doing so, he communicates to us in the way that we need to be communicated to. He does it that way because he knows the best way to reveal himself to us, and he knows the best way to calm the storm. And finally, the last thing I think we can learn is that Jesus wants us to trust that he will meet our needs. Jesus wants us to trust that he will meet our needs. When Jesus shows up, what does he say? Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Jesus wants the disciples to have confidence that he'll come through for them. We already talked a little bit about what it means that the disciples hadn't understood about the loaves. And I said that what they hadn't understood was that the multiplication of the loaves was a sign of his divinity. But I have to wonder if there was something else the disciples hadn't understood about the loaves. And that was that the miraculous provision of the loaves was evidence that Jesus is a willing and abundant provider. Jesus doesn't want his followers to just think that he can provide bread or that he can calm a storm. Jesus wants his followers to expect and trust that he will provide bread and that he will calm the storm. He wants his followers to have courage and confidence that he is not just able, but willing to meet our needs and to calm our storms. There's a funny moment that happens a few chapters after this. And this really confirms this idea for me. It's uh, in chapter 8, and I think we have it. Jesus performs another miraculous feeding, uh, believe it or not. Maybe you didn't know that, that this, this uh, multiplying loaves of bread. Jesus does it twice within two chapters, and he feeds thousands of people, two separate occasions. Um, and after the first feeding, he walks on water. That's what we just read. After the second feeding, this amusing scene takes place where once again, they're on a boat. And this is what happens. Starting in chapter 8, verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. 
So what Jesus is saying here in a metaphorical way is don't think the Pharisees, don't think the way the Pharisees and Herod do. They refuse to put their faith in me. They don't believe. Don't think like them. But the, the disciples don't realize that Jesus is talking metaphorically. So they hear the word yeast and all they can think about is the fact that they only have one loaf of bread on the boat. That's it. That's just where their mind goes. So in verse 16, they discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. So I love this. The disciples think that Jesus is upset because they've only brought one loaf of bread. They hear the word yeast, that's all they think. Um, But what really makes this funny is that the disciples had just witnessed Jesus multiply a couple loaves of bread to feed thousands of people. You know, never mind the, you know, 13 on the boat. And that was the second time he had done that. So they didn't think that Jesus was incapable, right? The problem was they didn't think he was willing. Verse 17 then says, Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Notice, that's the same phrase that was used to describe um, the disciples after Jesus was walking on the water, right? Their hearts were hardened. Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? What Jesus seems to be saying is, why do you think I'm so stingy? Do you still not get that I'm, I'm not just able, but also willing to meet your needs? You see me miraculously multiply bread twice, and when I did it, don't you remember how much bread was left over? Didn't I provide an abundance? This is the irony here. Some people see those two numbers, 12 and 7, and they're like, what do they mean? (laughs) It's like, well, they mean that Jesus provides an abundance. There was leftovers. That's the point. When you start trying to look for some hidden meaning in there, it just gets ridiculous. It's like, no, the the answer is, is yelling at you right on the surface. They didn't understand about the loaves. The loaves demonstrated that Jesus was willing to provide, not just able, but willing. Take courage, Jesus says. It is I. Do not be afraid. We all have different storms in life, different struggles and challenges that we face. But whatever the storm is, we need to trust that Jesus will intervene when the time is right. And he will do it in the way that's best for us, even if it's not what we expected. And while we're waiting, he wants us to trust that he's able and he's willing to provide. Let's pray. Lord, I know that for myself, sometimes it is hard to believe that you're willing. It's hard to believe that you know how to speak to me in a way that I can understand. And God, I pray that both for myself and for anyone here who struggles with feeling that way, 
that tonight we would begin to really believe and trust that you can speak to us in a way that we can understand, that you do want to provide for our needs, that you do want to calm our storms when the time is right, that you do want to intervene in the way that's best for us. God, I pray that you would bless us with the faith to believe that. And I pray that as we trust you, God, we would be able to see you at work. We would be able to see you fulfilling your promises. That we would be able to see you walk on water in our lives in whatever form that takes. God, we thank you that when you do wondrous things, you do it with a purpose. You don't just do it to show off, but you do it because you love us and because you want to reveal yourself to us because you know what's best and because you're a willing and abundant provider. In Jesus' name, amen.